Have you ever thought of starting a podcast, but not been sure where to start or which platform to use? Podbeam is the platform for you. And there's no better time to get started than with our exclusive free month offer, which you can get by signing up using our affiliate link, www.podbean.com slash debatedpodcast. That's www.podbean.com slash debatedpodcast. We at Debated have been using Podbean since we started, and is by far and away the best platform. Not just because of its efficiency, but because it allows you to easily upload podcasts onto any service you like, including iTunes and Spotify. If you're a business person looking to take your company to the next level, then why not use our exclusive business code and get a month free of Podbean for businesses at www.podbean.com slash pro slash debated podcast. That's www.podbeam.com slash pro slash debated podcast. On with the episode. Dude, we are going to energise the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future's possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Harris, the former Labour MP for Glasgow Cathcar from 2001 to 2005, Glasgow South from 2005 to 2015, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Transport from 2006 to 2008, Shadow Minister for the Environment from 2012 to 2013, and host of the excellent Tom Harris, The Imposter Podcast. Welcome to Debated, Tom. Thank you, Will. Nice to be here. It's great to have you here. Um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, what made you decide uh, to do this podcast? And what made you decide to do it as a podcast? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm glad you're asking now when it's only been a few weeks, because I've probably forgotten the details. It's, it's a very odd genesis, actually. I was listening to a Doctor Who podcast by a bloke called Toby Haydock. And Toby does lots and lots of podcasts and he's written tons of Doctor Who and he's even appeared on television and he's, he's an actor and writer. And he does, he does very good podcasts. And I was listening to one and it was, there's an awful lot of Doctor Who podcasts out there. I do one myself, in fact, with a couple of friends. Um, but it's quite difficult to get a niche in, a, in an area where there's so many podcasts of fans doing Doctor Who, but but the way Toby did it, and it struck me that he talked a lot about his own personal background and as a childhood and how he, uh, how he came to love Doctor Who and why and what he, the stuff that he bought and the adventures he got into. And I was listening to it and I thought, I, I like this approach. I would like to do something along those lines, but obviously not with Doctor Who because I don't have that same background. And, it's, and on the same day that I listened to this and had that first thought, I very quickly came to the conclusion that there might be an, an interesting audible story to tell about my life in the Labour Party. And before the day had ended, I had recorded a 10 minute trailer and put it up um, before even kind of thinking about what I was going to see in the next mm. few episodes. But I had a good idea in my mind that I wanted to make it very personal, but I didn't want it just to be about me. I wanted it to be about big events political events that have happened over the last 30 odd years uh, with a personal perspective on them. So I, I like to think it's not so much about me, but the hook that I chose was 
and it's true, you know, this is a genuine thing, this imposter syndrome that I've suffered from my whole life. I thought that might be of interest to people out there, especially people who might be considering a career in politics, because I think it does affect more people than, than we admit. And I just thought that would be useful to some people. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned the title there and the feelings of um, being an imposter, which you mentioned throughout um, all the episodes that you've uh, released so far. Do you think that there's something particularly about the Labour Party, or do you think it's politics in general that makes people feel like they are an imposter, that somehow they don't belong? I, th I think it's probably a common experience right across the political spectrum, but I think it is particularly felt by working class candidates, whichever party you stand for. I, I've always believed that, you know, identity politics is, is not, of any interest to me. I think what's really important is class politics. I think for me, that has always been the driving force behind my politics. This awareness that, that working class people have not been given the opportunities that they should have been given, that working class people themselves are culpable in that because we are the people who are least likely to push ourselves forward. Whereas if you're brought up in a middle class home where your both parents are graduates you're far more likely to be brought up with the the kind of cultural intuition to push yourself forward a lot more i think middle class people that i know don't feel these kind of doubts about whether or not they should push themselves forward um but i think it's far more common among working class people but that but i think that applies whichever party you're standing for hmm. uh, now in the podcast you mentioned uh, some of the uh, instance that you had with um, militant, and I think you described them as uh, middle-class wankers at one point. Uh, do you do you think that part of the reason that um, some of the members in militant felt that they had to um, say that they were standing up for you know the, the the real working class and all that kind of thing was because they were almost embarrassed to admit that. Uh, their politics came from a, a middle class environment. So they like to uh, pretend that they had more working class roots than they actually did. Yeah, I think that's about right. I think, um, you know, most Marxists historically, <laughs> you know, Marxist leaders have generally been middle class and fairly well off middle class. It's actually the same to be fair of most leaders of the Labour Party. You know, Labour the Labour movement has always drawn its leaders from the middle classes, very rarely from the from the working classes. Um, and I think part of militants as as it was, it's now this the Socialist Party. But I think that kind of uh, mindset uh, requires you to claim that you're representing working class people because you know from from a, a, a an ideological perspective you know marxism is all about the working class um but what militant do and what what they did in in, in the 70s and 80s was claim to represent a group of people that had absolutely no interest whatever in being represented by them uh, if you look at the way militant treated working class people in Liverpool in 1985 by by sacking most of them mm. just to make a political point, just to create headlines. And that was by no means the, the, the full extent of their crimes against working people in Liverpool. And they, they do it wherever. I mean, in London, around about the same time with John McDonnell who is a genuinely working class guy, I, I accept. But, you know, when all of his middle class cronies were urging him to, to set an illegal budget in London, that would have had, had 
catastrophic effects. Not in the middle classes. It's never the middle classes that suffer that sort of thing. It's always working class people. Um, but they didn't care. They just wanted to, you know, put the boot into Thatcher. And I just find that whole that whole uh, notion just appalling, uh, completely egregious. I, I remember. I mean, one of the the, the the episodes talks about the campaign against payment of the poll tax back in the late nineteen eighties. And again. You know, if you didn't pay the poll tax, that's great. You felt virtuous. You know, you could stand up and say, I can pay, won't pay. But the people who depend most on local services are working class people. Mm. They were the people that were going to suffer. It's always the same when these nut jobs get into any kind of level of power. Now, one of the moments that you um, particularly uh, mentioned, you use a clip from it, is Neil Kinnock's famous anti-militant speech. Why do you think that decades later, people in the Labour Party still have that as a, a, a touchstone, you know, a moment that is so vivid in their minds. Do you think it's because it not just represents the, the battle between two different sections of the Labour Party at the time, but in general represents the battles between two different sections of the Labour Party that we've seen throughout the history of the Labour Party? Yeah, I think on your second point, it is absolutely true that the history of the Labour Party, the development of the Labour Party has focused probably too much on this battle within it, you know, between the left and the right. Um, and and whether you think that's a fight that's worth having or not is a fact that that has defined the course of the Labour Party. Blair is always defined as being on the right against the left. Uh, Corbyn is defined as being on the left against the right. Um, that's just the way of politics in a way that doesn't really impact or, or reflect itself in other parties. Actually, Labour is peculiar in this. I think it's probably the same with other left-wing parties throughout the world, that there is this ideological battle going on. But the other thing, and this is probably just old farts like me who actually remember watching it as it happened, it was so exciting to see, you know, at the time Margaret Thatcher was ruler of all she surveyed and she was known, I think, you know, rightly as someone who was strong and decisive. Um, and Kinnock, you know, suffered by comparison at the time. And in 1985, there was this feeling that at last we have a leader who can stand up to Thatcher, who is as, who is as principled as her, who is as decisive as her, who's willing to take on the bad guys. And you know, we hadn't really had that before. I mean, people forget, of course, that Michael Foote in 1982 expelled the entire editorial board of Militant, but he did in such a kind of reluctant way that he never got any credit for it. Um, whereas I think that was a, a really important milestone for the Labour Party, for the moderates in the Labour Party, because it showed that a leader with enough courage can actually make a big difference. And he did in the longer term, not, not in the shorter term. On that point of not in the shortest, and you mentioned during one of the episodes how you were um, uh, extremely disappointed at Kinnock being unable to win the 1987 general election and, and, and shocked by it, why people would uh, continue to choose Margaret Thatcher over Neil Kinnock. Why do you think, looking back now, that Neil Kinnock wasn't able to become Prime Minister in either 1987 or 1992? Oh, good question. I mean, first of all, I, I joined the Labour Party because I was genuinely inspired by Neil. So I, I, I have a, a long abiding and, and trenchant love for the man. Uh, so I, I don't want to criticise him personally. I think it's fair to say, however, that 
the the public just were not as convinced as as I was, and um, you know the number of people in the Labour Party who loved Neil were, were vastly outnumbered by the number of ordinary voters who just were not convinced that this man was was ready to be prime minister. I think one of the problems was his history. You know, he was a man who came up through the rank and file and became you know leading member of the NEC as an MP because he was on the Benite left of the party. You know, the, he was unequivocal about that. He he sat with with uh, Dennis Skinner in the House of Commons in protest at the Queen's speech. There's a famous photograph of Kinnock and Skinner sitting uh, uh, deliberately boycotting the, the Queen's speech. Now, Kinnock did that. I mean, if you speak to Dennis about it, he gets a bit annoyed because that was his thing. That was his jam. And then one day Kinnock joined him. And, and Dennis, I think, saw it as, as Kinnock kind of piggybacking on his own protest. Um, but Kinnock made no, no, uh, uh, you know, there was no doubting where he was from in the Labour Party. He was for uh, independent, um, you know, unilateral disarmament. He was uh, in, in those days against devolution. Uh, he was against membership of the EU or the EEC, it was at the time. He was in favour, I think, I could be wrong on this, but I think he was in favour of the alternative economic policy, uh, economic policy that, that the Benites were promoting. So he was from that wing of the party. And I think he basically, as leader, and, and then belatedly recognising that that agenda was never going to win, he had to do so many different U-turns on such a range of policies that I think by the time the 87 election came, um, his credibility was kind of shot because he, he was seen as inconsistent. And I think that is the problem with people who make that journey, as they call it, you know, from the from the left to the right. It's all very well, but and it's, it's good that people recognize the mistakes of their youth, but the public won't necessarily buy into that and give you the benefit of the doubt. You think also part of it was the fact that some people interpreted his style of leadership as being uh, perhaps overtly presidential. I'm thinking of Spitting Image that um, satirised the uh, Kinnock the Movie uh, advert of being, you know, uh, that he was standing to be president of the United States or at the 1992 Sheffield rally when people described it as, as presidential and perhaps not in keeping with uh, usual British politics. Do you think that that was something that in some ways held him back? Um, I, I don't actually. I, I think he was ahead of his time in that respect. I think if you remember the, um, was it the David Putnam produced uh, Kinnock the movie? It was a fantastic video that actually reflected a, a quite a substantial jump in the polls when that was first shown. And, you know, you know, it was only a very few years later where, when um, John Major was doing similar kind of uh, videos, um, you know, his, his return to his Brixton roots. It's there. It's still there. Um, and and, and Kinnock kind of created the template in Britain, of course, it'd been done in America for, you know, as you say, on a presidential basis. But it's now normal to do that. In, in British politics. I don't think that that itself, I don't think harmed Kinnock, because of course, Kinnock the movie came out during the 87 general election. By that time, people had already made the minds up about Kinnock. I mean, it was a popular video and it was well done. I think people liked it, but essentially, you know, general elections are won in the course of years. They're not won during a general election mm. campaign and, and Kinnock had lost by the time the 87 election was called. Do you think that part of the reason, just staying on that, is that it wasn't so much to do with Neil Kinnock and more the continuing suspicion that certain voters had 
that the Labour Party would be too left-wing or that it would be communistic or, or, or whatever feelings that people um, had had in the 83 election. I mean, I, I know in the, the podcast you mentioned that you voted for uh, the SDP. Do you think that that was something that just stayed in the public consciousness for far too long than was the actual case in, in terms of internally in the party? Well, well, yes and no. In fact, 1987, Labour's manifesto was just as ridiculous and extreme as it was in 1983. It was just repackaged. It was no longer the longest suicide note in history. It still had unilateral nuclear disarmament. It still had renationalisation of everything. I can't remember what it was, what it said on the EEC, but um, it, it wasn't a moderate manifesto, but it was presented as such. So I think it was probably the right decision to reject it, you know, with hindsight um, for the public to reject it. You know, why would they, you know, it was a, it was rather patronising, I think, of the, of the Labour Party to think that all we had to do was sell the same message that we tried to sell, to sell and failed in 1983 with a new face on it and a new binding on the manifesto. That, that, that was doomed to failure, I think we can now say uh, with hindsight. I think 92 was the far more important defeat because then Labour had really come to terms with what was causing it to be unpopular. It had radically changed. It had ditched unilateralism. It ditched high taxation and renationalisation. Um, and and yet we still lost. Now, it's interesting, if you read Tony Blair's book, I mean, he, he makes the point that um, Kinnock shouldn't have stood again uh, as leader. Uh, uh, he should have resigned as leader after 87 because, you know, once the public make you make their mind up about someone, they're very unlikely to change it. And I think that's absolutely right. I think Kenneth was the wrong, I think he's probably the right person to take us into 87. And I think he was the wrong person to take us in, uh, in 1992. Who do you think would have been the right person in 92? In 92, it should have been John Smith. Um, I mean, another another problem that, that Kinnock faced in 87 and therefore throughout the rest of his time as leader was the minor strike 84 to 85. Mm. Kinnock did not handle that strike well at all um, and I say this as a, once again I say this as somebody who is a great admirer of, of Neil. He was st stuck between a rock and a hard place in the minor strike um, but there is no doubt that his reticence to condemn picket line violence, he used the phrase at the TC conference in 1984, I condemn all violence without fear or favour. That just sounds like Jeremy Corbyn saying he condemns all forms of racism. You know, it doesn't actually address what the issue was, which was picket line violence. And he was reluctant to do it partly because, well, of course, you know, the Labour Party, the you know the the miners are the royalty of the of the Labour Party or they were at the time and you just did not criticise the miners while while they were out on strike, so he was in a very difficult position. But I think if he had taken a stronger view, there would have been some support for that in the party. But he didn't, and and he allowed himself to be accused in the Commons by Mrs Thatcher of being frit. Uh, by you know at the time Norman Willis, who was the general secretary of the TUC. He, he did actually outrightly condemn the miners during a speech. And I don't know if you'll remember this, but the, 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 the televised scenes were just horrific. While he was making the speech, striking miners dropped a hangman's noose down towards Norman. 
uh, and there was a lot of jeering uh, and it was an appalling scene and Thatcher raised it in the Commons rightly with Kinnock and said that the right honourable gentleman was frit, too frit to do the same that Norman Willis had done. Going on to um, post Kinnock to um, 1997 because the most recent um, episode of the podcast covers the uh, 97 election, how did it feel then during the 97 campaign from the beginning were you certain of Labour's victory or were you cautiously optimistic throughout the entirety of the campaign yeah I, I didn't believe the polls uh, but um, you know having got my fingers burned so badly twice before I, I mean all the you know it made sense to be optimistic to believe we were going to win it didn't make any sense that the polls, all of the polls were that wrong. But I remember once there was, a, I think it was an ICM poll for The Guardian, but a week before polling, which gave Labour a five-point lead, which was massively down on, on, the, on what the other polls were. And I remember being really worried at that point. In the same, and I understand that Major was quite buoyed up at that point, understandably. Mm. And I I just, yeah, there was there was always a doubt in my mind that, I mean, losing and being in opposition was such a cultural part of the Labour Party. I used to tell people that I was worried that the British Constitution was being rewritten to redefine the Labour Party as the opposition, because it was just such an assumption that Labour was never going to be in government. And I was worried that that was you know, becoming part of the, the national narrative. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was optimistic. We had a we had a great time during the campaign locally, and and I once again, as I say in the in the podcast, it, 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 my memories of the ninety seven election campaign where it was always sunny, uh, it was great weather, especially on polling day itself. Um, but I think if we really believed the polls, we wouldn't have been quite as overjoyed and excited as we were when the when the actual <clears throat> when the actual results started coming through. Now, in the podcast, in several episodes of the podcast, you talk about um, dealing with uh, SNP members uh, in, in Scotland. Why do you think the SNP, from the time when you first interacted them to now, have become far more dominant in Scottish politics than they were in the 1980s? I think some of the SNP narrative about Scottish Labour's demise is wrong. I think there is this kind of easy, convenient uh, story that Labour in Scotland became complacent, or it became too right-wing. Um, and I think I think both those things are true. I don't mean they became too right-wing. I think it's certainly that it was more right-wing than some people want it to be. Those things are true, but they're also true of the Labour Party in large parts of England. You know, the Labour Party culturally in Scotland was no different from the Labour Party in the Northwest or the Northeast. And yet they <clears throat> they didn't lose swathes of their MPs. And I think the difference was that the SNP, which doesn't exist obviously in England, mm. represented a left-wing challenge to the establishment. That, that was Labour's problem in Scotland was that we were dominant for so long that we became the establishment. Um and people like to vote against the establishment, especially at by-elections and, and other elections, even if we kept winning general elections up until 2010. So, you know, we, we had the, the, the disadvantage of being an establishment, but also being out of power for a large, large period of time. So there was that, but, you know, 
there was also devolution. Devolution. I mean, I often say that the independence referendum changed everything, and it did. But things had already been changed by devolution. Um, you know, we went from having, I think it was six SNP MPs elected in 1997, and for the two previous elections, it was three MPs. So that was the total national representation of the SNP. Um, and then we set up a Scottish Parliament where they had 30-odd MSPs. They had 30-odd MSPs, each with their own staff. They were now paid full-time, who were doing a lot of campaigning, a lot of work with journalists. And suddenly, from being a, quite a small rump of a party, they had a very large representation at Holyrood. And over time, of course, that has an effect. Um, I think Donald, Donald Gere was complacent. And I think he had genuinely believed the SNP were never going to win power at Holyrood. My view is that from the second that the Scotland Act was passed, there was always going to be an SNP, uh, an SNP-led executive. Um, it was just a question of time. And, and when that happened, I think the whole discourse in Scotland, the political discourse just, you know, changed completely. Um, there had never been really any demand for independence. But then again, there hadn't really been any kind of huge representation of the SNP at a national level. So devolution played its part, the independence referendum played its part. Once the referendum was out of the way, you know, you had 45% of Scots being very, very angry angry at all of the unionist parties and uh, when you've got 45 percent of people voting for one candidate in a constituency and 55 percent splitting their votes across the three unionist candidates then you end up with the result that we saw in 2015 with uh, 56 out of scotland's 59 seats turning nationalist um, now apart from the podcast you've also uh, the author of the book 10 years in the death of the labor party do you think that the Labour Party is still dying or even dead? The, <clears throat> the easy answer to that is I don't know. It's it's possible that, I mean, I should point out that the, the title of the book is taken from Austin Mitchell's 1984 book, uh, Four Years in the Death of the Labour Party. And like, you know, Austin's book came out just as the Labour Party was picking itself up off the floor um, and going on to greater things ahead so, and and... So I didn't really mean for the, the title to be that this was the end for the Labour Party, merely that it, was, that it served as a warning that it could be the end because no party has a God-given right to exist mm. uh, or even survive. Um, I, I think anything could happen. I think Keir Starmer is doing as good a job as anyone would in these circumstances. I think the Labour Party, when it first loses elections, there's a number of things it always does which are a complete waste of time and they've got to get over these things before they can move on and actually start winning elections again. One of the things is the, the, the activists certainly like to turn left as if that's an answer for anything. So they did that with Miliband, they did even more with Corbyn. So the recovery, if there is to be one, is going to be much longer than, than it was in the past. The second thing they do is they start obsessing about the constitution. You know, they think that all these red wall seats, all these red wall voters in, in the Midlands and, and in, the, in Wales and the Northeast, they think that the reason they voted for Boris Johnson is because they really want proportional representation and an elected Senate instead of the Lords. And you've got to wonder, you know, where these people pick up their, their uh, intelligence on the ground. Um, so, so it will get over that eventually. Um, 
well, if it does get over that eventually and starts talking the language of actual voters, as Blair did in 94, 95, then, you know, they'll be in with a shout. It's very difficult to see how Labour can actually win a general election without this, a, a, a rump of Scottish seats. Um, it's been done before. I don't get the sense that we're in the same kind of world as we were in 94, 95 when Blair took over and, and, and you know, and people were just waiting for the, the government to disappear. Um, I don't get that sense at the moment. That might change. And I think if there's, another, if there's a fifth defeat in a row, then you might see either the party come to its senses or just, you know, dividing uh, and, and splitting irreparably. Um, in which case you might see some kind of party emerging from, from the wreckage. So I, th I think it's in a difficult position. I, I don't think it's definitely going to die, but it's not out of uh, intensive care yet. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been great speaking to you, Tom, and I have one final question. Now, as you mentioned at the start of the podcast, you're a Doctor Who fan. You have your own uh, Doctor Who podcast. And before um, uh, myself and my co-host uh, started debated, we also did a uh, Doctor Who podcast called Ooh. Desert Island Who. Now, the idea of that <laughs> was to choose eight Doctor Who stories that if you were marooned on a desert island and they were the only Doctor Who you could get, you would choose these eight stories and be able to watch them. So my final question <laughs> to you is this. What eight Doctor Who stories would you choose to take on a desert island if you couldn't watch any other Doctor Who? Excellent story. Excellent question. Right. Okay. First of all, Spearhead from Space. And I'd probably take that twice. I'd probably take up my first two because uh, that was the very first one I ever remember watching all the way through when it was first broadcast in 1970. John Pertwee's first adventure and the first one broadcast in colour. And it stands up to date. It is an immense story. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Uh, if I could find the lost tapes, I would love to take the Myth Makers. Um, yeah. I just think that is one of the classiest, wittiest stories that the, the, that's ever been produced. Um, I'd probably take the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Mm. Uh, I would take the Invasion. Um, I would take Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks. Yeah. How many am I there? Uh, well, I've not been keeping count. Okay. Uh. And I would take almost anything from Tom Baker, but particularly the Talons of Wang Chiang which I think is probably the best from that era. Um, I'd also take the Seeds of Doom. Um, and from Davison's period, I would probably take Caves of Androzani um, and the Five Doctors. I think that's probably us up to eight by now. Yeah. I, think, <laughs> and I think that's an absolutely fantastic list and would particularly endorse your choice of the Myth Makers as I think it's a very underrated story. Oh, it's lovely. I think there's the, one of the titles is, is Small Profit, Big Return or something. And mm, yeah. I think one of the writers has suggested that um, one of the titles should be, should be uh, Is There a Doctor in the Horse? Which is just brilliant, even if they didn't use it. It is. Uh, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Tom. If people want to find out uh, where to listen to Tom Harris, The Impostor, or find out more about you, where should they go? Um, the best thing to do is just to type Tom Harris, the imposter, into whichever app they use for listening to podcasts. There is a Podbean website, and I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the actual website, but it's on my Facebook page. There's a Facebook page entitled Tom Harris, the imposter. That's probably the best place. Excellent. Well, I hope people check it out because it's a fantastic podcast. Thank you. Once Thank again you very much. On. That's very kind. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. 
If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.